This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are the foremost expert on the white power movement in the United States, Professor Kathleen Ballou of Northwestern University and a prominent journalist from The Atlantic and former editor of The New Republic, Franklin Four, who's just written a new book on the first two years of the Biden administration. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write in a politics war room at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we're going to get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the links to our sponsors, Real Paper, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting the sponsor. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Franklin Four, who is one of America's really, really top journalists, has written The Last Politician on the first two years of the Biden administration. It was eagerly anticipated, and to date, it is the best account of this presidency, a remarkably productive two years, a remarkably underappreciated president. Frank, in your interviews, you have superbly described the inner workings of this administration, and we're going to get to some of that, but Carvel and I are old hacks, so we want to start with politics. Some commentators were shocked at last week's Wall Street Journal poll showing Americans think Biden is too old and running at best even. I guess they missed the AP poll and almost every other poll before that. It really wasn't much news. Does anyone in the family, the Biden family or the White House staff recognize this peril or do they cling to the myth that only Biden can beat Trump? I think there's a lot of clinging to that myth. And it, let's, let's also say that at this stage, it might not be a myth. I mean, who knows what can emerge from a Democratic primary? And in Biden's mind, he's the guy who has the track record. And if it comes down to a comparison between him and Donald Trump, he feels like we have some empirical basis for figuring out how that's going to go. So I think that that's probably closer to the way that they think about this. Um, And it's still a long way to go. I think that the question about aging is really one of the most fascinating questions. And it's, it's a hard one to talk about because what's embedded in those polling is like everybody who has had a parent or a grandparent who's, who's aged. And so you bring to that discussion all the personal baggage that you have about aging. And um, when we talk about aging, there's this sense that there's this sell-by date that people have, which is not true. And the thing about Joe Biden is Joe Biden is kind of a combination of a guy who's in front of our eyes aging. We can see it in the way that he walks. We can see it in the way that he talks. Um, uh, But he's also, Nikki Haley talks about a test for mental acuity. And I got no doubt that Biden would pass 
that test if it was applied to him, that you can go through a meeting with Biden where he's going to get a little bit lost in a story that he's told. And maybe Joe Biden always got lost in the stories that he tell, told. And then he's going to turn around and deliver a very masterful presentation about grand strategy in the Indo-Pacific. Both those things are true. I, I Politically, I mean, I would turn to you guys. I would <laughs> love your insights into whether the age question is something that Biden can never really shake and whether you think that it's going to be the thing that's going to actually define him in, in a race where Trump is his opponent. I'm afraid that I do. And I think if you took a survey of, of leading Democratic politicians who would be on the ballot next year, they would say, give us Gretchen Whitmer, give us Gavin Newsom, give us someone else. And I think almost all of them would say he's been a good president. Uh, and, and I'm, and Frank, boy, you, you know so much better than we do about the real Joe Biden. And I accept everything you've said about the fact that he's still cognitively and intellectually there, but it doesn't come every time he goes on television. I, I, I worry, I cringe a little bit. Yeah. And, um, I, I don't know how that changes, Frank. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, well, it's also who he was and, and to some extent it was true in 2020 as well, right? When you, when he debated Trump. Didn't you have that same reaction then? Yeah, I did. But then, he, you know, he was going against a clown. So, you knew at least would be offset by that. But no, no, you're right. It was certainly true in any, uh, you know, earlier, uh, uh, I guess, going back to 2008 primary debates. Let me ask you about Kamala Harris. Ever since Walter Mondale fashioned arrangements for a VP to be a close advisor of the president, constantly in communication, it's been followed by George H.W. Bush to a degree and then certainly by Al Gore and by Dick Cheney and by Joe Biden. Harris, however, comes across at least as more like Dan Quayle, not really a very integral part of this administration. How much of that is self-inflicted, which you've written about, and how much of it is the Biden staff or the president? And do they ever think, gosh, maybe we should have chosen somebody else? <laughs> I don't know if they think that they should have chosen somebody else. Uh, I certainly didn't hear that, but I think that she's um, – the search for a political identity has been the thing that's plagued her – plagued her since her aborted her board presidential run in, tw in 2020, that she really has struggled to figure out who she is as a political being. And in the administration, she set all sorts of rules initially about what she wanted. And um, she was reluctant to be the administration's emissary to the political base of the Democratic Party, which is in some ways the obvious thing to do, you know, obvious path for her to take. And she resisted that. Um, she she talked a lot about wanting to make inroads with white working class males. Um, and there were people in the administration who tried to steer her in another way. And only with the Dobbs decision and with her becoming the leading spokesperson of the administration on the abortion issue has she started to embrace what was kind of obvious to everybody from the outside from the onset. James Carville? So, uh, Frank, this is a notoriously and pretty effectively tight-lipped operation. I mean, you don't see these guys. I know all of them for, for a long time. And, and I, I, I consider myself to be friendly with Rashetti and Mike and Anita and all of them. How did you get this access? I mean, you, you I don't know. I mean, it's amazing because not, that this is some administrations are way more open than others. This is a, not a particularly, I, don't mean, I mean, it kind of respectfully, don't get me wrong. <laughs> and you got all of this access. How, how did you do it? Tell us your, your sales secret here. So 
so much of it is just sticking around. And um, I also, uh, I think part of it was uh, I am, I'm an opinion journalist. I'm a former editor of the New Republic. I kind of make no bones about my, um, my ideological predilections and the things that I'd like to see happen in the world from a policy perspective. And before, when Joe Biden was running for president, I wrote, a series of articles where I took Joe Biden seriously about what he was proposing. And I, and I was willing to go in and just read the policies and describe the platform. And I think that there was some appreciation for the fact that um, I was seeing them in those, in those articles as they existed and, and capturing the fact that Joe Biden didn't want to be a placeholder president that he was going to propose some really major pieces of legislation. And then I get, I started working on the book, which was originally going to be about the first hundred days. And I start, and it's talking points that you get from people, right? That it's like you, 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 you sit. And so you just have to, I mean, the hardest, the hardest journalistic virtue is patience and you just have to keep showing up and you have to keep showing, you have to keep showing curiosity and asking uh, good faith questions and not getting distracted by the the crap that comes across the transom every day and have your eye on history. And, you know, if Joe Biden hadn't been able to, if, the, if Joe Manchin hadn't ultimately passed the Inflation Reduction Act, if, um, if COVID, the COVID vaccine hadn't had been a disaster, I'm not sure I would have been able to pull off a book like that. You need to have instances where you have people who feel triumphalist about something and they want to crow for the sake of history. And so you you just have to, I, there were moments where I was just worried. I wouldn't, I was wasting my time. I wasn't going to be able to pull off something interesting here. And um, I was freaking out <laughs> quite frankly. <laughs> and, and I just had to kind of just remind myself, like if you stay long enough, if you just keep knocking on the door, then the story will come to you. So you asked, you know, how, how, how do we look at it? How, how are people looking at this? And I think it's useful to think of this as a race against the clock. All right. What the Biden people would say, yeah, our numbers are not very good. I admit it. But Reagan's numbers weren't very good in August of 83 or Clinton in August of 1995 or Obama in August of 2011. And this economic recovery is going to take hold and people are going to come to realize that they have it better than they previously thought. That's not an unreasonable argument, all right? Mm-hmm. I can't dismiss that as, all right, you're full of shit. There's some truth <laughs> to it. Yeah. The other argument is people have kind of made up their minds and they're not likely to change. And we have a real problem with black voters who are having historically low turnout, and I don't have any policy doubt that Joe Biden is the best president we've ever had for black America. I mean, if you just look across the board, employment, income, uh, appointments, you name it. And young people are not enthusiastic, and we're going to go in to 2024 with an enthusiastic white over 65 electorate and a, a, a lethargic under 30 and black electorate, and that could produce really bad results. So I'm just giving you the yeah that that both yeah the on one hand the other hand yeah I think um, inflation as a political condition is 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 obviously one of 
the most terminal things that a presidency can be struck by because the type of pain that people experience with inflation is lasting. It's every day and it's not likely to to dissipate even as conditions improve because it it has this this uh, stinging impact. That was the calculus that Joe Biden made with the American rescue plan. And I don't know if that, I don't totally buy the Larry Summers argument that that was this massive inflationary thing, but there clearly was a trade-off that they made in their own heads between taking an inflationary risk and then Joe Biden's the lessons that Joe Biden learned from the the financial crisis, which was that long-term unemployment is this scarring thing. It's what contributed to the rise of Donald Trump. And so he, he erred on the side of overcorrecting on the full employment front with this risk that there would be some sort of long-tail inflation that followed. You know, Frank, you describe in rich detail the Afghanistan withdrawal, which I think was the right policy and just terribly executed. I also think that was the start of the Biden slide. As voters thought after Trump, they would get competency. And that looked like anything but competent. And I think in many ways that began the age question. And I think if Biden should lose, then I think we're going to look back to August of 2021 and say that was a seminal moment. I I agree. Um, I think that it's hard to go back to that moment and not – it's hard to go back to the moment and conjure just how close Build Back Better was to passing in its most expansive form, mm-hmm. that there could have been this um, – this historic expansion of the safety net and it didn't happen. And Afghanistan is the moment where he got rebuffed. And that's one of the conventional ways in which we judge a democratic presidency is if, what have you done to expand the safety net? And while the Biden agenda, I think is really capacious, it's done, it's very significant. There's nothing, he hasn't left that lasting extension of the state in the form of social welfare that, Obama did or that Johnson did or Roosevelt did. Uh, but, but you're right that Afghanistan was the beginning of all of these impressions that he's been unable to shake ever since. So, so Frank, I'm probably one of five people that remember this, but you've done a lot of reporting on Trump's ties to Russia, particularly something called Alpha Bank. Yeah. And I've always thought that was a much bigger story than it got picked up. But it, just talk to us a little bit about that and how, how enmeshed the, the whole outfit is with Russia, because it's going to have to come up in 2024. Yeah, well, that was a story that I published late in the game in the 2020 election. And um, I, you know, it was portrayed by a lot of people on the right as if I was kind of getting fed a story that uh, that was intended to be an October surprise. But there was this troubling set of data that nobody has really ever been able to explain. And I talked to a slew of really the top uh, engineers and and experts and computer scientists who specialized in this form of data transmission. And they all said there was something interesting and important to pursue here. And you go back and you look over time at um, some of the proceedings related to this, and it's clear the FBI never looked that carefully into what happened there. And it's also clear that if you go back and you read something like the Senate Select Committee Intelligence Report on the 2020 elections, that they were troubled by a lot of this stuff as well. Now, I always allowed for the fact that there was potentially nothing there, 
but it felt like it was an important thing to be raised because it suggested there were the, these other patterns that we were seeing in Trump's relationship to um, to Russia. I, I think that uh, ultimately that's probably a dead end because it, it, nobody's been able to prove anything, you know, nobody's been able to assert anything other than there was some anomalous data. Um, I look more at uh, the Manafort stuff, which was something that Robert Mueller, obviously it felt like was, uh, or Robert Mueller's prosecutors, especially Andrew Weissman thought was the richest trail. And the Mueller investigation got closed down before that was ever followed to its bitter end. And that that's always been the thing that I've uh, been left with the most questions about. Thank you, Albert. Let let me go. I I also don't forget Roger Stone and uh, knowing ahead of time uh, that they were going to leak the uh, uh, the emails, the Podesta emails. But yeah, I I think there was a lot of uh, collusion, whether it was legal or not. Um, A a couple of things back to the book. You it's fascinating. You describe Biden both as really supremely confident in his own instincts and abilities and at the same time insecure around some of those better educated elites, if you will. Yet you look at the staff surrounding him, Harvard, Duke, Yale, Georgetown, Columbia. Uh, It's rather ironic. Uh, And I guess the other question I'd have is that um, it's a very good staff, very talented staff, but he doesn't really have any peers around him, does he? One of the for Biden, Biden's an Irish Catholic politician who grew up in the 1960s, who um, who who really um, worshipped the Kennedys, especially Robert Kennedy. And I think for for Biden, family and clan is kind of the atomic unit of politics. And you you look at the people who've been around him; they've been around him since they basically graduated from college, a lot of them, the people yep. like Donald and certainly Ron Klain, that was true. And um, you would think that there would be all of these rivalries within the staff vying for uh, daddy's attention, but they've kind of managed to work through a lot of that. Um, I mean, you, you say, why are there no peers in the Biden administration? Well, <laughs> we did we did just note his age. Um, <laughs> there are not many people who uh, go into their 80s uh, wanting to be uh, chiefs of staff to what has chiefs of staff. It's interesting. His closest advisor, probably his closest friend is this guy, Ted Kaufman, um, who I'm sure you both, um, you know, yeah, from Senator he, he would be a yeah. peer. Yeah. And and he uh, he talks to Joe Biden on a very regular basis, and they have a they have a kind of a great uh, brotherly relationship where he is in a position where he can um, he can tell Joe Biden he's being wrongheaded or stupid or something about something, and and Biden will listen. Um, uh, Kaufman, I, I, one of the tragedies of a book is all the stuff that lies on the cutting room floor, and I had done a lot of I had a lot of opening chapters about the Ted Kaufman, Joe Biden relationship, because if you can, can I, if you forgive a little bit of a tangent, um, Ted Kaufman was the guy that Biden dispatched to um, Chicago in 2008 during the transition then. And uh, by, uh, Kaufman is an engineer by training. He worked at DuPont before he went to work for 
for Joe Biden. And he looked at the whole process of presidential transitions and he said, this is incredibly inefficient. This is a very dumb way to build a presidency because it all has to be built on the fly much too late. So he gets appointed senator and he goes into the Senate and he says, I'm only going to be here for a short time. Uh, He gets really mad at finance in the course of that, in the aftermath of the financial crisis, does a lot of work calling out the big banks. But then the other thing he does is he starts to craft legislation to fix the presidential transition process. And one bill gets passed. And then when they pass this follow-up bill, reorganizing presidential transitions to extend them, it's named after Ted Kaufman. And so Biden and Kaufman in, in March of 2020 start talking about how they're going to build a presidency in a different sort of way. And they decided that they were going to start the presidential transition far earlier than anybody's ever done it. I think they hired Ron Klain as chief of staff much earlier than any other president has hired a chief of staff, even though that wasn't publicly known at the time. And uh, Kaufman's theory of the case was that Every presidential transition starts with the cabinet and that he was going to start from the bottom up with all the officials who didn't need Senate confirmation. And so, you know, all all, so they would they had these long lists They hired Jeff Zients to be their HR department for the new government. And um, when they arrived in office on day one, they had more people in their seats, ready to implement plans that had been hashed out in advance. And so that's part of the reason why you get this initial surge of competence in the administration. And it was a, you know, it was, it was a, it was phase one of the Biden presidency, which I think in some ways was, was the best, the best phase. You know, Franklin, I could see an Atlantic piece uh, called The First Pier uh, on uh, on Ted Kaufman, but uh, yeah, you can figure out what was left out. Let me ask one more question, then, James, I know we'll have some. Yeah, uh, and I come back to where we started. If Joe Biden next week were to step aside, which you said you don't expect, but it wouldn't shock you, yep. he would go down as the most successful one-term president in American history with historic achievements. The right-wing insanity about impeachment would end. Congressional attacks on Hunter Biden would surely subside. I think 2024 Democratic prospects would soar, and he would leave with great honor. Do you think that ever occurs to him or the First Lady? No, I don't. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it does. I mean, I think you're call, you're invoking the Cincinnatus myth, where you know he got called back into service. He has this this successful period, yeah. then yeah. he goes back to his farm, um, and that would be that'd be one of the great stories in political history uh, in, in its way. Um, but you're asking him to basically be another person, I think, to make a decision like that. Um, you know, I still think that if Part of the reason why I said I hold, I think there's some chance that maybe he arrives at a decision like that is if there was a genuine political crisis where he started to slip and slide and the poll numbers were no longer even, but he was, he was, he had some sort of deficit. I think that that might change things. And and then also just who knows, he's, He's an 80-year-old guy who knows what happens in the course of uh, in the course of time. Um, yeah. But those are the two two little things that I just kind of can't shake from my mind. James Carville. So Al said the secret word, the first lady, Mrs. Biden. 
I think the, the power that she has compared to the coverage that she has is, is, is a great mismatch. I, I can't believe that she doesn't wield a lot of influence Absolutely. with the president at White House. Absolutely. Uh, I was asked, is she Nancy Reagan? And she's not. I mean, she, she is powerful in maybe certain ways that evoke Nancy Reagan. But Nancy right. Reagan was a polarizing figure. Nobody hates Jill Biden which is part of the reason why she can go on the road and stump for Biden and also compensate in certain ways for the type of political campaigning and glad handing that he's maybe uh, not up for doing. Um, uh, But she does wield that kind of influence. One of the, the charming things that you read about is her or hear about from her staff is that she will tape these encouraging messages to Joe Biden on the on the bathroom window to get him psyched up in the morning or help him feel better when he's feeling down. Uh, when it comes to education, she's so very deep in the weeds. Um, she played a pretty significant part in picking the education secretary. But in terms of changing the political narrative in the way that I think your questions suggest, right. I think that she is probably the person most capable of doing that. It generally, in my life in politics, that this, the spouse is a very important player. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to say the least. I, well, Frank, I, I, I was so excited when you came on the show. I, I literally over the years, I think I've read every word you ever wrote. Oh my goodness! Yeah, I'm serious, and it was just a big honor for Alan I for you to come on. You got this terrific book out. I think it's you know, the first is always groundbreaking and. You know, my hat's off to you for getting the kind of access you did and the kind of reporting you did. I think it's an important first draft of history. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, it's, it's totally my honor to be here with you, too. So. Well, I want to second that, Frank. Uh, the Last Politician, it's a must-read. It is uh, you are the Lou Cannon of the Biden administration, and that is high praise indeed. Well, thank uh, you. So thank you, and good luck with the book, and let's stay you in bet. touch. Absolutely. Okay. Thank All you, right. man. Thank Take you. Take care. Uh-huh. Bye. This is your invitation to the intersection of versatility and design. The kind of experience you can only find in a Lexus SUV. A feeling this empowering is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the versatility of the complete line of Lexus SUVs and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, James, one of our very best guests dating back to the fall of 2020 has been Kathleen Ballou, history professor at Northwestern University and the foremost authority on the white power movement. Kathleen, as always, it's terrific to have you with us. Um, Kathleen, I'm nervous. I'm more nervous than usual about the potential for violence. The Jacksonville shooting, and you've noted before, these are not, the lone wolves is not an apt apt uh, description. Trump inciting um, more anger and, uh, and and maybe potential violence. You follow the traffic. Are my fears legitimate? I think so. And I think that this last round of convictions of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers on seditious conspiracy charges, particularly the sentencing yesterday, as we're speaking of Enrique Tario, the former leader of the Proud Boys, um, 
many people are talking about this as if these sort of high-level selective actions will cut the head off the snake. And I think what we're dealing with here is really more of a hydra. Um, it is a web of interconnected groups. Some of them operate in open, some of them operate on the underground. And then, of course, we have these um, mass violent events that appear to be quote unquote lone wolf actions, but are actually um, in many cases, and insofar as we're talking about white power activity, are part of this cohesive movement. And we can trace ideological and social connections that really make make me and other experts in the space worried about a rising tide of violence. And we're not thinking of something big like January 6th, that's sui generis, but just a series of, of, of smaller but deadly uh, and anywhere in the country, because you said before, uh, these, the, there's, there's no geographical limit to, these, to this white power movement. That's absolutely right. I think the, the tricky thing here is that we're needing now to track action um, kind of along a number of different channels. One of the channels is kind of big and performative. And that's where I would categorize January 6th, which was um, it was it was imagined by Proud Boys and Oath Keepers as sort of a a big flashy recruitment action, right? It's a strike at the heart of power, but it wasn't meant to be a mass casualty event um, like those carried out by the underground. So then we have the underground, and this is where we see events like the Oklahoma City bombing back in 1995, which killed 168 people. That's where we are are likely to see unfolding action. Um, I would like to know more, for instance, about that series of attacks on power stations. I think it's, um, you know, I'm not privy to the information that the FBI and ATF have about that, but I would be very surprised if there wasn't some amount of ideological um, content there just based on on the kinds of targets this movement has selected in, in the past. And then we have the smaller casualty numbers, but those carried out by single gunmen. And here we have Buffalo and Jacksonville, Charleston, El Paso, Christchurch, the Tree of Life Synagogue, we could go on and on. All of those actions are part of the same thing. So um I think it's it's very hopeful in some ways that we're able to get some seditious conspiracy convictions. That's new. Um, on the other hand, it's really a drop in the bucket when we're talking about the overall sort of um, set of activities that we've seen in the recent past. You, when we we spoke to you right after the January 6th Trump-inspired mob attack on the Capitol, and you ventured that Trump has become a figurehead uh, for these r- radicals, but he might also, if he's indicted uh, and tried, he might also uh, incite more violence. He's now been indicted four times. There's probably going to be a trial sometime next spring, at least one. Does it worry you that that is going to become a further uh, impetus uh, for violence? Oh, certainly. I think Trump is leaning very hard into activity by this movement, which at the very least, you know, um, setting aside, not that we can set such things aside, but even in addition to the body counts and the impacts on affected communities, um, this has become a a news cycle that I think benefits Trump. When we see those convictions of Proud Boy leaders, um, his base is talking about, you know, um, politicization of the judicial system and calling for reprisals against the justices, against the G- the um, FBI, against election workers. So it it really fits into the way the discourse and the way he's talking about this. So um, 
we see the Trump campaign more and more overtly embracing these actors. So after January 6th, um, you know, there was not a step away or any kind of recalibration. What we see instead is Trump meeting with Nick Fuentes at Mar-a-Lago. That's an, an open white power demonstrator. Um, we see him holding a press conference in Waco, which to people in this movement is not just sort of like a vague anti-government right. gesture. It's a call to additional violence um, along the lines of the Oklahoma City bombing. So everything has become bigger and more overt, even as I think the rest of us are becoming somewhat desensitized because this is just a string. It's action after action after action. It's hard to keep up with all of it. James. So, uh, Professor, is there anything, any policy thing that we institute, either legislatively or administratively? Is, is there some kind of policy response to this problem as you set out? Yes, absolutely. And that's such a great question because I think one thing we don't want to do is get overly focused on our judicial system as the only mechanism of dealing with this problem. Because, you know, it's it's working better than it did in the late 80s. We're getting some seditious conspiracy convictions when they're warranted. That wasn't always possible before. Um, but seditious conspiracy convictions are only going to be sort of selectively useful. Um I think the biggest lever for change would be getting serious about um, following through on a lot of what was decided and recommended immediately after January 6th. So for instance, um, during the Department of Defense stand down after the 6th, they made a number of promises about getting serious about extremism within the armed forces, which has been a tremendous problem um, for our nation, at least since the 1980s, when people were um, recruiting active duty troops, stealing munitions and explosives from um, U.S. posts and bases, um, and running paramilitary camps using military infrastructure. That's a huge problem. I think reasonable people can agree that you can't protect the nation from enemies foreign and domestic and also be an enemy domestic at the same time. Um, but the military has not been able to enforce these very reasonable um, recommendations. So a recent report by USA Today just found that the DOD hasn't even been doing all of the exit interviews about how big a problem extremism is in the armed forces, much less some of the more aggressive actions it pledged, like um, keeping um, active duty troops from retweeting extremist content, from being part of groups that actively um, agitate for the overthrow of the country. These are basic actions we should be able to follow through. And, and one begs the, you know, it just begs the question, why not? Well, I, I think the answer is they're having real recruiting shortages. And if you got rid of all the racists in the U.S. military, you'd be with a pretty thin force. But that's just my, my, my own two cents worth. How, uh, before I turn it over to Al, I mean, you follow this better than probably anybody in the country. How confident are you that the FBI and the ATF and people like this are kind of on top of this, monitoring it, looking for things? Could you talk to that just a second, please? Sure. So um, the good news there is that the FBI and the Department of Homeland Security have really reoriented their mission around this problem. They've declared white power extremism and militant right extremism, or what they call CVE, um, violent extremism, as the number one terrorist threat to the nation. So that's where our resources are now at those agencies. The bad news is that we are very, very late to the party. Um 
you know, that's only, it's really only since 2017 that agencies have begun to dedicate resources and really only in the last two or three years that we've seen the kinds of resources dedicated that we would really need to get a handle on this problem. In those years, there has been just like an exponential increase in activity among extremist groups. Um, I would need to go see the numbers myself, but I was just a co-panelist with someone from the um, center that studies these numbers out of University of Nebraska at Omaha. And it's just, the numbers are just stunning. It is a huge increase. The, the trend line is going up at just an exponential rate. So the good news is that our, our you know, our, our watchdogs are oriented in a good direction here. The bad news is just, we are very late to the game. So the question is how fast people can work um, to contain the threat. Oh, thank you, Albert. Let me pick pick up on the the FBI, and I, I'm fascinated that Christopher Ray, who by most accounts has done a good job and has been, as you say, aggressive on this, very forthright about the dangers these white power uh, extremists pose. He's now become a villain among right wing Republicans. Many of the presidential candidates are saying, "I'm going to fire Christopher Ray on the Hill." All the right wingers. I mean, this connection between the white power movement, the extremist, and at least it would appear some some elected politicians as at least as enablers or non-critics. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we don't have to stretch very far to see how intently the blowback is for anyone to begin this kind of questioning um, on the national level. And, you know, we have to trace some direct lines from discourse about I'm going to fire a Christopher Ray to, you know, the ground level extremist blowback against the FBI, against the IRS, against, um, you know, there was just one this week, I think, about election workers in Maricopa County, Arizona. Yep. Those are just folks who are doing their duty as civil servants. You know, I, I think that um, it, we really are sort of at a precarious moment about the future of our ability to have free elections if we can't trust these sort of basic fundamental institutional responses to violence and organized violence, especially. Um, and I mean, it's not, you know, there, there used to be perceptible daylight between the GOP and the more extremist white power content. There is now no daylight between those positions. And that's not to say that everyone in the GOP is sort of taken over with all of this, but certainly there are people who have infiltrated into the GOP and are now steering um, both in local and national ways, how our conversation works, how our discourse works, um, and sort of where the response is going to land. Yeah, boy, you really do see it. Uh, uh, many of them are vowing to get rid of Christopher Ray. Um, talk, talk just for a minute about the role that social media plays in the white power movement. Sure. I think social media is um, best thought of as just an exponential increaser of everything. So what it really is doing is creating this super highway of information by which a number of older strategies used by these groups are now just supercharged and very, very fast. Um, the one that really scares me is that um, there was a study, and I'm going to blank on the specifics, but it was something like from the homepage of YouTube, to take mm -hmm. one example, it's only four or five clicks to white power content. These algorithms deliver people very quickly into this content so that something that begins 
quite benign, um, can take you into radicalizing ideological content incredibly fast. So, you know, to all the parents out there, this is a alarming piece of information because it doesn't take a long time for a young adult um, unsupervised online to encounter this content. It's a conversation all parents should be having with their kids about what to do when they when they see this kind of material. Um, and you know, an, another example is something like um, you know TikTok, which has fun videos. Very quickly, you can get from sort of like how do I can my own food to content about. Um, what's called trad wives or traditional housewives, sort of white power feminine feminine homemaking spaces um, that looks very innocuous at first and turns out to be radicalizing content. So all of these are very slippery pieces of the puzzle. And I think um, to me, the antidote really is the awareness of that broader context, because that's how you know what you're consuming. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm, let me just make make uh, ask one question before turning back to James. I am struck by these grievances have historical precedence. Uh, as you've noted, the Jacksonville shooter was wearing the Rhodesian flag emblem. Rhodesia was the segregation, white segregation country that, that, what, 40 years ago was replaced by Zimbabwe. There's been South Vietnamese flags that have been waved. Uh, at the same time, America is now uh, strengthening our relationships with the different Vietnam. I mean, this stuff really goes back. I mean, at least their memories go back and their grievances go back a while. Yes. And to me, you know, as a historian, when I see those sorts of symbols, the Rhodesian flag um, wielded by um, the Jacksonville shooter, also by the Charleston shooter, Dylan Roof had the Rhodesian flag patch prominently displayed in his social media. The South Vietnamese flag is now sort of a coded reference to being anti-communism and therefore, um, you know, anti-woke, I suppose, is the the uh, present-day corollary, or um, the Proud Boys wearing the Pinochet was right shirts referring to, you know, I don't know, it's a hagiography of the Southern Code dictatorships of the 70s. These are all sort of um, really clear signs if you're a historian, right? Because what they're doing is calling back to this earlier set of ideological framings in a way that tells us a lot about the through lines, about the durability of the white power movement in our history. And it really affirms for me that that earlier sort of mode of operation is still what we're dealing with. To me, that's good news because we can read the playbook. We have the long history of that earlier movement. We have the broad view. We're able to see the underground and how it works um, in that earlier period, even when we can't see it in real time. So to me, that's really the call to read the history and understand how it all works. Um, sort of like learning a second language. We can see how it works by looking at that earlier moment. Yeah, we sure can. James. Yeah, I have one question before we let you go, Professor. First of all, thank you so much for your tremendous insight on this. Now, this is viewed by a lot of people as a uniquely male problem. I don't think that's your view, is it? I mean, and, and, tell, and being a good feminist that you are, stand up and say women can be just as crazy as men can be. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think, you know, one of the big surprises for me in writing about this movement in the 1980s and 90s was how much women's relationships um, and real women were important to holding the movement together. Now, we often don't see the women when we're talking about an organized paramilitary groundswell because... 
Um, you know, if you think about something like Unite the Right, women were told to stay in the motel rooms while men marched through the streets. So if you just look at the pictures, it sure looks like a male movement from out here, right? But right. The women were there in those hotel rooms and they've been posting online and they're running the trad wives bulletin boards. And they're, you know, in the earlier period, the the marriage relationships are one of the major ways we can know how interwoven these social groups were, even as they're trying to come off as neutral. Um, in the sentencing yesterday, we saw um, something that has been a feature of these legal moments, which is um, women standing up to testify for their men as sort of a, a mechanism of um, calling for public sympathy. Um, now, that's not to say that the women in this particular case are or are not in the movement. I'm, I'm not in a position to talk about that. Um, but in, in prior seditious conspiracy trials, the presence of women, even fainting women and women um, who are performing martyrdom in really conspicuous ways have been used to secure lower sentences or acquittals. So the presence of women here does a lot of important work. Um, and, you know, they'll tell you themselves, they speak in their own sort of mechanisms throughout this movement as well. Yeah. All right. Just one more observation before I let you go. I, I watched a lot of Nazi propaganda, Triumph of the Will. And what's really striking is how many women were on the, when, when Hitler was going through the street. I mean, they were You'd see more women than men. And I started noticing that because of the earlier conversation I had with you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I always show Triumph of the Will as opening to all of my classes because it's Oh, interesting. Yeah, me too. Yeah, Yeah, you know, there's also just a a kind of basic thing that we should all remember, which is, you know, when we're talking about – glossy terms like the great replacement theory, which is what a lot of people have been concerned about lately is it's really a new word for the same thing that's been motivating all of this the whole time, which is the idea that the white race will somehow be overrun or driven to extinction by modern society, whether it's through immigration or abortion or feminism or interracial um, relationships or what have you. Um, All of that at the end of the day comes down to the regulation of white women and their sexual practices, right? Because they have to secure white babies to continue a white race. That has sort of accidentally given women an enormous measure of symbolic power within these groups. Um, And even though they are, you know, very anti-feminist and the women themselves will tell you they're anti-feminist, women do wield an enormous amount of rhetorical and symbolic force because of that position. Um, So you do see the women over and over again, um, you know, sometimes being deployed as symbols by men, but often like claiming that in their own way in order to galvanize this movement. Well, I got to tell you, you are one of our great guests. We learn sure every time. I can't, I can't say I go away feeling better uh, afterwards, Kathleen, but I sure know a lot more. And uh, uh, all I can say is the country's lucky to have people like you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Way to stand up for your gender. Y'all can be as stupid as we can. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Go, go teach those Northwestern students. Thank you, Kathleen. Oh, thank you very much.
now for the outrage of the week. James, for the second week in a row, I am combining my outrage and the screw the voter segment. Remember last week, it was some Georgia yahoos who wanted to oust Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis for the audacity of indicting Donald Trump. I think Georgia Governor Brian Kemp put an end to that. But also remember, it was only in April with Wisconsin voters overwhelmingly elected Janet Protosiewicz by double digits to the state Supreme Court. That gave Democrats progressive a four to three majority, ending 15 years of conservative Republican domination, during which conservatives enacted voting restrictions and partisan gerrymandered districts. Now, those can be reversed by the new court, and that strikes fear in, with these entrenched Republicans who didn't, don't want anyone to touch their political protection racket. So what are the Republican legislators planning? I'm serious now. This woman was elected overwhelmingly four and a half months ago. They're going to try to impeach her. They're going to try to impeach her to say, screw you to the voters who just elected her and to the rule of law. And again, to quote myself from last week, this is the way fascist governments think hungry operate. Wisconsin has several historical political strains. One is the open, inclusive La Follette legacy. The other is the darkness of Joe McCarthy. Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss is taking the dark route. Well, I, I had a, a conflict on, on my outrage in both of them in the days New York Times. The one I did not use, but the, the significant, is probably Medicare costs have just flattened and not that big a deal. Never in history have so many been so wrong about something so big. In, in the 90s, I would point out in early 2000s, to be against entitlement reform was to be for segregation. As it turned out, not so much. But I got to go to my outrage with the Ross Duhart column. This, fuck, this guy passes himself off as a deeply thoughtful conservative. You know, you can like it, not, but he thinks about deep things. So I see the headline, even James Bond has gone woke. I'm like, oh, shit, I can't. What, what are they doing now? Evidence of his wokeness, his new girlfriend is an immigration lawyer. Oh, my God, that anybody should date an immigration lawyer, a hero, is, well, my God, that, that's so old. Uh, secondly, it's a fake plot to assassinate King Charles, and a lot of it brews in the Brexit community. As if thinking that Brexit is the stupidest idea that a country could come up with, make someone woke a part of the fringe left, is asinine. Further evidence of wokeness is apparently the in the, the fiction, it has something to do with Hungary and the, the autocratic, anti-democratic government they have there. Is that what the fuck you're talking about in terms of wokeness? You can't date an immigration lawyer without having the New York Times op-ed page come after you? It was so goddamn vapid, it, it, it's hard for me to express it. And, oh, hey, you think Brexit was a good idea? Find me five people that know anything that agree with you. But at any rate, that, that, that's my outrage of the week is a stupid Ross Duhart column. All right. And now for our listener questions, which are fabulous, as always. Andrew in Los Angeles, James, says the House Republicans appear to be choosing 
between two suicide missions, a government shutdown or a Biden impeachment. Could you expound on how this might play out and what the effects would be politically? Well, I'll tell you what I think. First of all, politically, that's all I care about. They ought to shut the go. I hope they shut the government down. They never win this. They always look stupid in doing it. Okay, go ahead. As Clint Eastwood would say, make my day. On the impeachment thing, there's a secret part of me that hopes that they do this or they launch an investigation. And I'll tell you why. James Comer is a very right, very much a lightweight. In fact, I, 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 he's borderline stupid. All right, Jim J Y M Jordan is. Well, he's a creep. Let's just put it that way. Our people are very good on this committee. I, I don't have any fear of having an impeachment inquiry. I think at the end of the day, it'd probably be beneficial to Democrats. Now, you say, well, it's not good for the country, and you don't want to shut I understand that. But in terms of being good for politics, which is my, kind of my role on this show, I'm all for shut the government down and have an impeachment inquiry. You know, get your ass handed to you. Yeah. Well, this is a sequel to that. Chip in Milford, Kansas asked why McCarthy won't make a deal with Democrats that would allow him to push more moderate positions and shut out the extreme right from continuing to paralyze the government. If he enlisted Democratic support, he could maintain his speakership and probably cement his legacy as a great American that worked out of partisan gridlock. You know, great American and Kevin McCarthy, I'm sorry, Chip, I just can't say that in the same sentence. He can't do that because he's scared. He's scared stiff. He's scared stiff that they'll dump him. And if Republicans dump him and they have the votes to do that, uh, I don't know that Democrats will come to his aid. I don't think they will. They don't want a long-term Kevin McCarthy. He hasn't done anything for them. This is different than John Boehner. So I think... Kevin McCarthy is scared every single moment. He just looks to his left, looks to his right, and it's just all bad. And it's awful hard to be an effective legislative leader or a leader of anything when you're running scared. I, I, I totally concur with your observation. And the guy, just he just don't have it. And I, I think we're probably better off with him running around like a scared rabbit than anything else. But And the Democrats are not going to rescue him. That's right. ludicrous. Right. He's done no, nothing to it. Right. No, right. No, he's got stewing his own ship that he's made. And, and they, they, they probably, they might, you know, they can do is you, you, you could explain that motion to vacate. You know, they get five, five Republicans and he's done. Right. Exactly. And, um, you know, every moment he thinks about that. James, our next question is about one of our favorite politicians and, uh, you know, maybe a problem. Sandy in Rockville, Maryland says, if Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro is such a great leader, which I think James and I both are enormously impressed with him, why can't he fix the disaster that is the Pennsylvania Democratic Party? They're a mess. (laughs) I have just read several pieces lately that says that the, the party is kind of screwed up. I did not know that. I not sure if it's true, but there must be some kind of problems up in the Keystone State uh, with the Democrats politically. You know, I read that story and several people texted me. I, I, I don't know, can't tell you that it's wrong. I'm telling you that bitching about the party in campaigns is, is a chronic disease in, among Democrats in Pennsylvania. They're always dissatisfied about everything. Right. But if the party... No walking is, around money and... Well, God damn, you know, you spend <laughs> all that money on television and I don't see anything on the street and, you know, you gotta... I mean, it's just... It, I'm just I've worked in a lot of different states. I've never seen bigger complainers 
than state committeemen in, in, in Pennsylvania. For some reason, I, I think the governor in, in South Shore are on top of this problem. I don't quite know what it is. I, I, we're having a big Casey reunion, uh, 6th and 7th of October. I'll find out about it. But I, I, I have never seen a time when Pennsylvania Democrats were not bitching about everything. And that's, that's I've had a lot of experience with it, let me tell you. <laughs> They'd be miserable if they weren't unhappy, James, right? Right, 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 right. right. <laughs> oh, God, man. Drew in Cleveland, Ohio. This is a really interesting question. says, if McConnell resigns from the Senate, are there any never-Trump candidates who could be appointed to replace him? If the Democrats keep the governorship and have to replace him with a Republican, who would be the best choice for the Democrats? The context is that the Republican legislature passed a law saying that if there's a Senate vacancy, the party uh, of that, uh, uh, that uh, person who's vacated uh, gets to pick, I get what, James, two or three uh, right, nominees right. to which the governor has to select. I think some Democrats are saying, hey, no, no way. That's not the way it works. And there is a good chance if Bashir is reelected, which I, I would bet he would be as close as it may be in Kentucky. Uh, and McConnell does have to resign, which I don't know that he will. I rather doubt it, actually. Uh, I don't necessarily think Bashir has to follow that. Uh, it'll be a great yeah, legal yeah. test. He's got a constitutional backup. The Constitution refers to the executive replacing senators, right. which, you know, you don't have to be a great lawyer to know the Constitution trumps everything, including Kentucky state law. Right. So, uh, yeah, and, and of course, that, one of the things that the Bashir people were scared of, if McConnell would resign prior to August the 7th, it would have mandated there be election in November. And I think the last thing they wanted was a nationalized election. Yeah, yeah. All yeah. right. So now, if, if God forbid, I, I hope McConnell, I don't wish that on anybody, but if something would have happened to him, uh, then the governor would, would be able to appoint. I suspect the appointment wouldn't last that long, but I do, I do know that, that August 6th was a significant date, and I do know that the Constitution does make a, a, a allusion to the executive filling Senate seats. So it gives some some confidence going into this. Yeah. Well. All right. That's uh, uh, that's encouraging. I, I I agree. We don't know anything about Mitch McConnell's health, really. Uh, you know. I think it's. You know. I really wish he would. Uh, uh, I really wish he would be more forthcoming. I think. I don't think you can you know, lack transparency in that. But apparently, that may not be so good. Uh, James. James' life is dedicated to anti-transparency. But go ahead. Go ahead. Ellen wants to know, you, you know, really, um, this is, uh, wait a minute, I'm going to, Ellen, I'm going to come back to you next, but I'm looking here. Oh, yeah, Ethan in Toronto, Canada, wants to know if James has any good stories from the filming of his scene with John McCain and Wedding Crashers. <laughs> uh, it was it was pretty quickly done. We had a, like a, I guess it was a cocktail party or something like that. But it was fun to be part of it. It was a great movie, and it, it you know I got that and old school. In my, <laughs> okay, I got that in old school in my <laughs> in my portfolio. So it was it was funny. I, and I sent to McCain. I knew him well, but he had any number of encounters with him, and he's pretty much what you think he is. He's a pretty charming guy, was a pretty charming guy, and very, very agreeable to get along with. 
Oh boy, he sure he sure was. Our family spent uh, a long weekend in Sedona, and he was uh, he was he was great company. Uh, we we have one question here that uh, is from uh, Bruce in Olympia, Washington, who says nothing is more important to the reelectability than an economy. The current debt limit extension uh, could lead to a government shutdown, which will compromise the debt rating. You know, I, I have to tell you, Bruce, that's a concern. I think the politics of a government shutdown are all in the Democrats, all in the White House favor. I mean, these people are just irrelevant. First of all, they're not keeping to an agreement that Kevin McCarthy and others made. They're breaking their word. Uh, and people don't like government shutdowns. If I have any worry, if it's any kind of an extended government shutdown, it could uh, adversely affect the economy. And then six months later, people will worry about the economy. But um, I actually doubt there's going to be a long shutdown of any sort. Well, a, a couple of significant things. First is Goldman Sachs reduces recession probability to 15 percent. Right. I, I mean, 20, the hysteria close, we yeah. were getting on on the economy was unbelievable. Secondly, Business Week, which is particularly hysterical on the economy, I talk about some people talking about 5.2 percent growth. Now that 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 would be beyond historic. I mean, I think we had that like right after the pandemic, but that's that's a, a rare thing. So I, I I look at these economic uh, prognosticators, <laughs> and I look at these Medicare numbers and. You can't help but think, you know, maybe there's some good things going on out there. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. James, I've been looking through. I can't find any questions from Rhode Island. But if we had one, they would probably ask about your take on election that was held there this week. It, it's, it was a Democratic primary. And it's significant in this extent. It's the Rhode Island first. So it's Providence, Newport. It's it's a 63 percent you know, Biden district, so there's not much chance we're going to lose a general. But you had a classic thing of a, uh, a, a leftist candidate. It happened about this, give people, I don't know why, but I'll mention it happened to be white, but Bernie came in and endorsed him. AOC, he was the progressive hope. I read a lot of these progressive sites, and they said that this person was going. And the, the person, another person in the race was a, a Hispanic woman who was the lieutenant governor whose campaign kind of fell apart, but for whatever reason, the guy that won was actually was, was a black guy, but he was a very establishment Democrat. He worked for uh, Obama. He worked for Biden. Senator the White House was for him. All of his spots showed him. And so the idea was is that this new energetic person from the left and, you know, huge majority Democratic district, Brown University, this is going to be a triumph of progressive politics. Well, the guy got 24%. I mean, I don't know how many times these people have to lose a primary before they figure out that people are just not buying this left-wing crap. I, I really don't. And, and, you know, when you see it in, in Rhode Island 1, you can't imagine what it is everywhere else. So I, I thought that, and I got a, a friend of mine is, you know, really follows that closely, and I got a pretty good briefing about what happened. And all this guy did was run spots in that primary about how he worked for President Obama and he worked for President Biden. And he won by like eight points or something. It just I think it's a, a, a lesson that. And the left was humping this. They thought they had the momentum going into Election Day or whatever they thought. They were colossally wrong. 
Yeah, well, that 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 has happened uh, more and more. All right, keep those keep those questions coming in. If we didn't get to them this week, we'll try to get to them next week because we really appreciate your insights. Whatever you do, don't date an immigration lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the link to our sponsor, Real Paper, and our episode show notes. We deeply thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You also can find the shows you might enjoy in the Politicon YouTube channel or when you search Politicon on your favorite podcast sites. Remember, please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.